Well, dear brothers and sisters, I wanted to talk to you about days uh, this morning. Um, as you may know, it is supposedly Father's Day this morning. We might wonder, is that an American invention? Is it just a way, way for Clinton's cards to sell more in their quiet month in June? Well, it's a celebration that has been going on actually for quite a while. In Catholic Europe, it has been celebrated on March the 19th, which is St. Joseph's Day. He's referred to as the fatherly Nutritur Domini, nourisher of the Lord in Catholicism, and the rest of us probably as the earthly father of Jesus. And that's been going on uh, since the Middle Ages. And it was taken to America by the Spanish and the Portuguese, to Latin America. And many countries in Europe and the Americas have adopted the American date for it, which is the third Sunday of June. So the Americans did have a part to play in it all. <clears throat> and of course there are other celebrations that we know of, well-known ones like Mother's Day and Easter Day and Christmas Day. Some parts of the world they have a Siblings Day and a Grandparents Day as well, although we haven't got to that stage yet. Even the Coptic Church uh, celebrates this day of fatherhood, but they observe it on July the 20th for whatever reason. But that may date back even to the 5th century, so it's got quite a long history behind it. You wonder why we need these commemorative days. So is it just to sell more cards and chocolates and flowers and ties for Father's Day? Will we forget somebody close to us if we don't have a special day to remember them? Even birthdays, you know, what? what's the purpose? What days are important to us? All these days, are there any part in Scripture whatsoever? Or have they come from elsewhere? Well, something we can think of, it's not a major part of my thoughts this morning. <clears throat> but days do occur in Scripture, special days. I think of the days of creation. First day, day and night. Second day, earth and sky. The third day, the land and the sea, the plants and the trees. And the fourth day, lights, the sun, the moon, the stars. And the fifth day, you had the water creatures, then the birds. Sixth day, animals, and man, of course. And then the seventh day, the day of rest. <clears throat> Days occur in multiples sometimes. Forty days, it's frequently mentioned. And it seems to usually be associated with a time of judgment or testing. Not always. And it's still 40 days means 40 days, but why? Why was 40 chosen? Because that was the number that God set. And it is there to emphasize the times of trouble and hardship, perhaps. 
First 40 days was the flood, of course, when it rained upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Jacob was embalmed for 40 days. Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount, and Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights, receiving the law, of course. <coughs> in Numbers, they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. Of course, not all the spies brought back a favourable report, did they? And so, later in Numbers, in chapter 14, it says, After number of the days in which he searched the land, even forty days, each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even forty years, and ye shall know my breach of promise. So we have a principle there, don't we? Year for a day that uh, we see cropping up elsewhere in Scripture. Goliath presented himself to the Israelites for 40 days, a time of testing, obviously. <clears throat> and Elijah in the first of Kings, and he rose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. Another time of testing. And of course, Ezekiel. When thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Again, the day for a year principle. A time of judgment. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Another time of judgment, forty days. Then we come to the New Testament, and speaking of Jesus. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. Or as Luke puts it, being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. That was a time of testing, wasn't it? Very much so. <clears throat> Just in passing, it's worth noting, Jesus was hungry after his fast. He had completed the time of testing. And it was afterwards that he was hungry. I suppose the lesson to us is we think the time of trouble, the time of testing is over, we think we've come through it, and then something comes along to try and catch us unawares, as the temptation of Jesus uh, would have hoped to do. <clears throat> and then in Acts we read also, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Was this a time of judgment or testing? And if so, of whom? Jesus? Well, he'd already been tested and found to be perfectly obedient to his Father. He passed every 
test. So perhaps it is a time of testing for those around. Would they now at last believe Jesus? Would they believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, or continue to doubt and disbelieve? And although many turned to Jesus, many, of course, didn't. The hardness of their hearts prevented them. So perhaps it was they who were being judged after being tested. I want to think of Jesus some more and think back to individual days now. In Luke 2, says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. That's an important day. We don't know exactly when it was, but <clears throat> when Jesus was born on this day. In Psalm 118, we know these words. They were quoted in the New Testament. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But the reading continues. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And if we read the whole psalm, we can see it is the day of the Lord, the day, the return of Christ. A happy time, a time for rejoicing, a time for being glad. Well, you'd think so, but maybe in Scripture it hasn't always been so. Let's just look briefly at a few examples, mainly from the prophets. Isaiah, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, born in wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Jeremiah, For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge him of his adversaries. And the sword shall devour, and it shall be satiate and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts hath a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. And Ezekiel, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, a cloudy day. It shall be the time of the heathen. And Joel, and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? And Amos, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. And I think that's one thought-provoking, provoked thoughts in me anyway. <clears throat> we say we want the day of the Lord to come back, but it's not going to be a happy time. For most of the world, it's going to be a very terrible time. There's going to be a lot of judgments being poured out. And 
this one in Amos is specifically saying, those of you that desire the day of the Lord, to what end is it for you? We have to ask ourselves, are we ready? <clears throat> we say we want Christ to return, but do we really? Do we really want Christ to come back? Is it something that trips off the tongue almost? It's something that we're familiar in saying, but do we really mean it? And are we ready for it is the other thing. Because we do not want the Lord to come back and find us ill-prepared. And even in the New Testament, says, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, sorry. As also ye have acknowledged us in part that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, that sounds a bit happier, doesn't it? But it is a time of great tribulation. And, yes, before, as it were, bringing it upon ourselves by asking for it, we need to be sure that we're ready. <clears throat> because, as it says, well-known words, First of Thessalonians, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And that's echoed in the second letter of Peter. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that therein shall be burned up. There are many signs and prophecies contained in Scripture that are there to encourage us. They are there to strengthen us and to help us to endure until the end comes. But surely these verses tell us that we can read and study the signs and the prophets to the nth degree. Will it really make us better prepared or, as the scriptures say, will we still be caught unawares as Christ returns like a thief in the night? Remember the parable of the virgins waiting for the bridegroom. There were the ill-prepared virgins and those who were prepared, those who had done everything they could. But as it says in Matthew 25, Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Even the ones who were prepared were still as it were, caught napping. The wise, as well as the foolish, all will be asleep. All will be caught off guard. But the difference is, the wise virgins have done everything they can to be ready. They will be able to concentrate solely upon Christ and his coming. They won't be there thinking, oh, if only I'd, I'd never finished that, I forgot to do that, I wish I had done that. 
No, they will have done everything they can to serve the Lord, to be ready at his return. Let's start to turn our thoughts now to why we're here this morning. Another special day. We might call it the Lord's Day. Although there's a little bit of evidence for that in Scripture. The Sabbath was not called the Lord's Day. Some people still think what we do today on the Sunday is the Sabbath, but it it isn't. They're different. There are two scriptures in Acts 20. There's one. Now on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Something happening sounds like it was a regular thing, but on this particular occasion, Paul was there, as it were, he was exalting that day. He went speaking until midnight. I don't think I'm going to go quite that long, but you know, we know the rest of the story, but the point being, it was the first day of the week. There's one in Revelation verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 10, says I, which is John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So those two scriptures, one very much talking about the first day of the week and one talking about the Lord's day. As I said, the whole grammar, everything about the Acts passage suggests that this was a regular occurrence. And because John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, demonstrates that the first day of the week bore enough significance to merit such a familiar name as the Lord's Day. And John speaks again of this day as if it was a normal occurrence. It's a bit of more theological arguments. The original Sabbath is based in the seventh days of the old creation, which we briefly mentioned. The Lord worked six days and then rested on the last day of the week. Whereas the Sabbath falling on the last day of the week was indicative of the old creation. The Christian practice of observing the first day of the week is congruent said in my dictionary, but you know it's associated with God's new creation. Christ rose on the first day of the week, and then he began, as it were, his Sabbath rest. Now also of interest is the fact that these two days are typical of the two covenants that go with each creation. With the old creation, Adam was given a covenant of works whereby he would work for a time and then receive his rest. Of course, Adam failed in that 
And the new covenant begins, it's suggested, with rest, and the works follow. It's a different relationship. Anyway, enough of the uh, theology behind it. We are here because it is the first day. We are here because we are remembering Christ who rose on the first day. And because we have the example in the Acts where they met on the first day of the week to break bread. So in summary, there's one day that we really care about. The day when Jesus returns to set up God's kingdom. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was something to be feared. The day of the Lord in the New Testament is something to be welcomed by those who are ready. If with still some trepidation, and we have this special day of the week, at the start of each week, to prepare ourselves for the rest of the week, when we can particularly remember our elder brother. But perhaps every day that we are given, every new day, is the Lord's day, when we can show our love, our praise and thanks to Yahweh for the wonderful hope that we have in Jesus. We can thank our Father every day for the day itself, for the sunshine, for all our blessings. It's a wonderful opportunity that we have to do these things. We have this channel of communication which is provided for us through our mediator, through the Lord Jesus. And of course, he is the one that we're here to remember now.